Welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre. But we didn't just do theatre. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we call paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we just... Really like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and readjust to their new reality, their new status quo. Right. In our last episode, we spoke about how our trip out west was tied into both why we erected the teepee and why now, a year living on the hill, we felt the necessity to make the trip. Yeah, um... Like we said, when we first put up the teepee, we didn't think it would be allowed to stay up. Um, So we climbed up on the roof in an adjacent building and took a picture of it, uh, of it, you know, this teepee sitting there in the middle of the shantytown. That way, even if somebody immediately took it down, you know, the powers that be, um, we would have a photograph, proof that it existed. And we didn't really understand this whole powers that be, who they might be. Um, but whoever they were, they couldn't tear it down now. Um, you know, a teepee, a memorial. We didn't realize that unless they knew who we were and why we put it up, that it would be very, very difficult to do. And especially now that it was listed as a memorial by the Municipal Art Society, that made it even more difficult, that was a few months in, uh, to, to remove it, right? Well, I mean, the whole of it must have been a real headache to the whatever powers that be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, during that time, I had a conversation with the borough president's office almost weekly for a time. Uh, I remember once uh, she, what was her name? Har- Harriet. Harriet Cohen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She said to me, Nick, I'm trying to understand what your motive is in all of this. <laughs> is it political or spiritual? Yes. Very on point kind of question. <laughs> I mean, I, she must have been reading my mail, my metaphysical mail or something, right? The answer is yes. <laughs> right. But, you know, we, I was lost. We were lost in whatever metaphysical or political quest we were trying to achieve. Uh, we never imagined we would be living on the hill. And now with all the changes, all the violence, we wanted to leave. Well, it, we wanted to leave, but how could we, really? It, it, if it was truly a memorial that we had erected, then we were responsible for its care. And the further complication was that we also now felt responsible, of course, for our neighbors, uh, our friends who were actually, at this point, more like family to us. Right. And so with our trip out west, we wanted to not just visit the uh, Wounded Knee site on the Pine Ridge Reservation, but we were hoping that we would be able to gift the teepee to the Lakota tribe or someone, anyone, who would be better able to represent uh, the dead that were being memorialized. And more importantly, we wanted to bring it to the land, to the earth, where it truly belonged. You know, the land of the Lakota, instead of where it was sitting now in the... Land, land. of the Lenape. Right. <laughs> right. Our, uh, our intent felt pure, and, but subconsciously, maybe even somewhat consciously, we understood, even at the time, that there was an incre- 
incongruity. Incongruity, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, of the whole endeavor. I mean, looking back now, we can see our kind of naivete and the absurdity of the whole thing. But our heart was definitely in the right place, and at this point, we were so invested. Um, you know, you build memorials for both the living and the dead, and the memorial is a marker. Uh, in this world, uh, but the belief is that it's also a marker in the other world, the next world, right? A, a communal site where both the living and the dead, uh, the ghosts of the dead, can meet, a place where memories are unburied and brought back to life. That's yeah. what a memorial is, right? And, you know, grave sites uh, are kind of personal or family kind of mini-memorial than yes. a grave site. And um, it's the most common mar marker that we have, at least here in America, uh, between the living and the dead. And if you visit the grave of a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, you're actually literally also visiting your DNA. Amazingly, um, human DNA has been recovered from a Neanderthal fossil yeah. 70,000 years ago. I mean, that's a record, but typically there is DNA recoverable from the human body, the skeleton, 150 years after death and longer. So at a grave site of a relative, you are standing there with your shared DNA. I was surprised when I first went to your hometown in Germany. Yeah, I was about to and, say. And how different the grave sites were treated or, you know, the, from well, where they are in America. Right? Well, yeah. Uh, first of all, the Germans don't embalm and entomb because there's simply not the land mass for it. You, in Germany, buy your grave for 25 years. From the church, right? From you the mean, church. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no, from the municipality, because not everybody... Right. 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 It's the municipality. I'm trying to remember who I wrote the check to. <laughs> yeah, I know, but the grave site, I, the graveyard was, I know, at, at, at the, the church. church. Yeah, yeah my, my, my grandparents' gravesite is at the Catholic Church, even right. though my grandmother was Protestant, but uh, Lutheran. But she, um, so I still buy that grave when it expires every 25 years. Um, because I want to be able to visit my grandparents who were more in many ways like my parents to me. But uh, if, if I didn't, the bones would be dug up and the next person would be buried. Are on they that dug site. up or are they put on top? I don't, you don't know, probably. Uh, as I recall, they're dug, dug up. And they're put where? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember, right. but I remember that. Okay, let me not let me not no, say no, don't that. I don't think they go on top though, because bones take a lot longer to decompose. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you you pay somebody to take care of the gravesite. Yes, because that's the other thing. Uh, graves in Germany are just mini gardens, unless you spend the money to put. What a lot of people do if they can't be there to take care of it is they spend tons of money on a granite or marble plate to put up on top. You know, Germans, a lot of Germans get very upset at this whole cult of graveyard thing, you know, because everybody goes there and comments on everybody else's grave, how it's not well taken care of or whatever. They don't know? go there and talk to their grandmother or grandfather? Of course they do. Okay. Of course they do. That's I'm what, just, I mean, that's what, Yeah. I mean, I guess... 
the p- real purpose of yeah, it. Yeah, but so, the point is that, uh, you know, right, I visit my grandparents, and after me, I have no children, and even if I did, I'm sure they wouldn't buy my grandparents' graves because they wouldn't have any connection to them. So sooner or later, it just goes back to the state, and they bury somebody new well, in the spot. Well, n- no connection with them, but, you know, th- along with the DNA that is inherited, yeah, which causes you, doctors ask you about that because they want to see if there's any disease or even mental illnesses that you might inherit Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but more significantly i think is we always carry our own kind of memorial site in us i mean what well this is no longer kind of jungian theory or something like that but they've proven uh, scientifically researched and proven that there's deep segments of the unconscious the unconscious mind Parts of the mind that are genetically inherited. Uh, Parts of your unconscious mind that were shaped not by your personal experience, (laughs) but by the experience of your ancestors. So not just your memories, but the memories of your ancestors. But wait a second, your mind or your brain? Well, you know, I mean... uh, Well, I mean, it's both because... uh, you know, they've proven it with studies with, like, crows. We've studied the crows. Yes. Where a crow will see, recognize his face as a humans and know good human from a bad human, yes. from their face. And that recognition is passed on to their children, their baby birds, right. without them teaching. T- teaching. Yeah. They just have it. They did the same thing with mice. So mice will be conditioned to a certain smell that they don't like uh, uh, or a smell that's associated with something bad. And the mice born will know that that smell is associated with something they should fear without, you know, any teaching. Fascinating. Um, Anyway, so. We erected a memorial for the Wounded Knee Massacre, but, but of course, uh, we brought our own life, our own history, our own memories uh, to the hill. Uh, and very deliberately, with the tarot cards as a tool, we were probing our own subconscious mind. Or, con- yeah, or unconscious, unconscious mind. mind. Right, exactly. Right? And, of course, we brought Thieves Theater uh, and our paratheatrical project, our project beyond theater that we variously named the Living Museum of the Nomad Monad, um, the Theater's Last Stand. So it was really our own very personal museum as well and our own personal memorial. Um, well, especially for you, but... And, and, and actually, Thieves Theater's Last Stand, right? That's a reference to Custer's last stand. And I'm thinking now, were we, you know, willing to die on this hill, so to speak, you know? (laughs) Well, it did become something more than just a project. That's for sure. It was our lives. I mean, something that you just didn't pick up and move at at a drop of a hat. I mean, I see now that there, it was the shadow kind of my unconscious mind, some blind spot that I didn't have access to that was leading me. Yes, and, and of course there were the, the, the violence and the threats of violence. And, and yeah. so at least subconsciously we, are, we were making our last stand because we couldn't leave these people behind, you know? Yeah. We couldn't hit and run. Right, and I... Uh, I yeah, st- yeah, no, 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 uh, sorry. Because um, we were, I just want to say we were very heavily invested at, at that point. And that's the thing that made us stay. 
thinking back on it now when we ask ourselves why didn't we just leave we couldn't just leave no i mean unconsciously now again i started seeing the heroin addicts on the hill had become our friends our our family almost uh i started seeing like the face of my brother you mm. know and so i was reliving the times that i went on rescue missions or whatever for him it, this was not a conscious thing this is something i'm seeing now 32 years later i said in the last episode how I was able to postpone acting out on my convictions and play normal for a while in order to get out of the psych ward because I promised myself that one day I would find a, a larger stage, you know, a larger audience where I can enact what? My martyrdom, my sacrifice. And the hill was now this larger stage right, in my head. Right, right. Because, yeah, 80-some thousand vehicles cross that bridge every well, day and then all the TV and all the press right. that we got, right? And all of the attention Yeah, in so here so, was the big stage, yeah. right? So I wouldn't compromise. And yeah. I would make my last stand and save my brother or my new brothers. I don't know. And um, they were all tuned in to my actions and words because I was so different than them or I don't know what I reminded them of, but... I'm just finding out these things, you know, 30 years later, going through this podcast of what was going on with me, right? Yeah. I don't remember exactly when I started wearing the ghost shirt, but it was during this time. Those times on the hill when I knew I had to face some kind of danger or some kind of thing that was coming at me from an individual or even a gang, when I felt that it might be my last stand. Right, right. right. Okay, so ghost shirt, his ghost shirt. Uh, you had kept a piece of clothing, one yeah. piece of clothing from your brother, Steve. <laughs> and that's what you mean by your ghost shirt, right? Yeah, yeah. It became part of a, a ritual, this shirt. I, I would put on the ghost shirt and dance in the playground park near the hill where I, whenever I needed to find the courage to <laughs> face something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. It was called, we called it, it was not called, <laughs> we called it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we've been calling it that forever. So uh, Tortuga Park. Because it had a monkey bar structure that resembled a turtle, and on top of it, the bars formed a pentagon. Yeah, it was a public park. It wasn't really used as a playground, but uh, my dance was always observed for a few Chinatown passerbys. Uh, I would probably just look like some other mentally ill of person <laughs> that was on the, all over the streets. This at is that the time. early 90s. Yeah, there were. <laughs> Nobody paid much attention yeah. to weirdos. <laughs> but I had imagined my dance to be gifted to me by one of the squirrels oh, in the yeah. park, right? There were a lot of squirrels. And as a high school freshman, my nickname was uh, Squirrel, right? <laughs> I, you know, it was a mocking name. I didn't like it much then, but now I was embracing it living with the squirrels. So in my, in my mind, it was the squirrel, big squirrel, I called him who taught me the movements and chants of my ritual dance around that Tortuga structure. Okay, <laughs> 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 okay, 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 okay. It's going to hurt people's ears, it's enough. <laughs> anyway, it's, a squirrel still figures prominently in Nick's life. He talks to them like that in our backyard all the time, and believe it or not, they talk back and they listen. He has yeah. little conversations with squirrels all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and they do the ritual dance that I once did, too. <laughs> They're funny guys. When we started preparing building the teepee, the memorial, while Gabby L. was 
sewing the teepee. Yeah. Uh, I opened canvas bags and started painting them, not in illustration or interpretation of the tarot deck as you would do, but under the influence I had researching the ghost dance uh, religion. So kind of ritualistic kind of painting when I was alone in the warehouse, I would dance and paint a sort of a prelude of sorts of the big squirrel dance I later <laughs> would do. But um, I didn't wear the ghost shirt yet at that time. But I remember I, I took a, that beautiful white yes. sweater of yours that yes. you had. Yes, my hard work. Yeah, that you, you had knitted it for me a couple years before. And I didn't ruin it. I enhanced it. Uh -huh. I mean, you, you had already. Uh, <laughs> you did. I put painting power in it. And you had already endowed it with some symbols already. Yes, I mean. because this was the, yeah, early, the early 80s. Uh, you were so heavily into Chrysler. And I knitted what was essentially the Chrysler symbol right into the sweater. So if you don't recall the Chrysler symbol, it's a pentagram inside a pentagon. And, right. and I just knitted that right, right into it. And then you started painting it. And it, I, I think it all kind of came about because you were studying Yeats, right? Well, in, no, in it was, and no, it was all his I... symbolism. Yeah, I was doing that, but the concrete poetry I was writing, I remember I was sitting up on the 23rd floor of University Tower where I was taking my graduate. University work. of Illinois, Chicago, which is where we met. Yeah. Right. And they were doing work below on the chapel. And I looked down at the window while I was studying the pentagram. And, of course, this was all part of, this, of um, architecture back in the day, in the Middle Ages, and there it was. The floor of the chapel was ex exposed, and there was the Pentagon. Of course it was. <laughs> well, yeah, it's architecture. But I felt I was initiated at that time. Exactly. And you even invested in Chrysler stock back in 1979 when it was on the verge of bankruptcy. But then the government swooped in and, and bailed it out. It was a big deal back then. Um, and you didn't have... Not a huge amount of money invested. No, in, I had but, a but you made a really good return on it, especially given that you didn't. Ex it's not like you were studying the market and what was going on with Chrysler. It was strictly a metaphysical investment for you because it was a pentagram. Yeah, pentagon. my my brother Steve had left me uh, thirty thousand dollars. He had a life insurance policy from his job that he had made me the beneficiary of. And I think I split it up. I gave a third of it to uh, his girlfriend, his, well, wife and family. They had a couple kids. And, uh, and then I gave a, another third to uh, my Aunt Mary, who had been sort of my spiritual support during the Jesus days. And um, I, I remember my mother was upset that I didn't yes. give her a third. Why, yeah, um, why didn't you? Your well, mom. no, my, my mother was all right. My father had died. She had gotten... Um, a, a good settlement from whoever was resp responsible. My my younger brothers got uh, uh, for the car accident. You mean? Yeah, uh, that, he died. that he died in. Yeah, because yeah. it was negligence on the part of the okay. other person, mm. and uh, my brothers were all going to get some money when they turned eighteen. And I I invested the ten thousand that was left in the bankrupt. Chrysler Corporation, uh, just before the government bailed them out. So it was at its lowest point. Yes. <laughs> and then, um, you know, again, just uh, not some shrewd financial kind of insight, but only because of the logo yeah, that exactly. I felt, I, you know. Well, you were clearly on to something. Right. 
<laughs> you were tapping into something. And then, of course, it also, the Pentagon, Pentagram, I should say, also became the Thieves Theater logo. And um, then there was that cap that I found in the subway that had five stars connected to it. While we were up on the while hill. While we were up on the hill. And always wearing our Thieves Theater logo. Yes. On hat, right? and, uh, and then there was somebody had drawn into the dirty windows of the van a Thieves Theater logo. I almost said a, a pentagram right. while it was parked near the hill. So, you know, there was this perceived magic all around us, even as we were chasing it, right? It was chasing us, yeah. right, right. I mean, even after we uh, escaped, I guess you could call the hill, and we were trying to become normal again. Citizens. <laughs> right. <laughs> we bought our first new car, but the new car had to be a... Eagle you know, Summit, which is Chrysler. And it had to have the logo, the Chrysler logo. Yes, and... Eagles and turtles became very, very important to us. Symbolically. Symbolically. So, yeah. it, you know, we didn't do a bunch of research on cars or stocks or yeah. anything. Right. <laughs> and by this time on, I hadn't completely abandoned my Christian uh, religion, but it was no longer the toxic element that it once was when I had my break breakdown 20 years earlier. And through my writing, in fact, I had framed and controlled it in a kind of ironic pose. My opus, my life writing opus, was called An Autobiography of Jesus Christ. Yes, and it was also your thesis for your MA. Right, right. And so it was kind of an arm's length enactment, a kind of literary rendering of a imitation of Christ. Yes, and I remember how I relieved I was when I figured out that it was an autobiography of right. Jesus Christ, not the autobiography. Right. That I just made you're... all the difference for me in trying to figure out if you were nuts or not. Right. right? right. <laughs> and uh, I had a, a quote that I always, it was an Oscar Wilde quote, right, uh, that I, I found and repeated very often, which is that all of Western literature is essentially, you have to categorize it as what is or what isn't an, an imitation, imitation of, of Christ. Christ. So I, I use that used, as... Yeah, you talked about that a lot right. back then, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in my research of Wounded Knee, I discovered the uh, Paiute uh, dreamer, Wovoka, who mm -hmm. started it, right? And I found a kinship there because uh, he had essentially taken Christian doctrine and folded it into his own Native American beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so there was a ghost dance uh, in 1869 around the dreamer prophet Wadziwob. And it spread for a couple of years to California and Oregon, and then it kind of died out or it was transmuted into cults. Um, but then the second ghost dance was derived from Vavoka. Uh, his father, Tavibo, had assisted Wadziwob, and although Tavibo was also considered a prophet in his own right, so there was that legacy there of prophecy and of dance. But if Vovoka inherited from his father this whole vision. Right, right. And uh, there's something interesting in the names here, too. I mean, Wadziwab, the, you know, the earlier prophet, mm -hmm. his name translates as gray hair or white hair, so likely because it was he was a triber... Elder. Yeah, yeah, and had gray hair. But that name, Wadziwab, then became the name of anybody who was then a prophet or a shaman or something. 
they took on that name. So uh, Waboka's father. Tavibo. Yeah, his 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 real name was. Uh, Numo Tibo'o. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. But Tavibo was what he was called because uh, that translates as uh, white man or northern Pai- Paiute white man. Mm-hmm. Because he always just wore white white man clothes. Okay. Everything was transitioning there in an interaction with the whites. Yeah, you know? yeah. And Wavoka was also known as Jack Wilson because he had been adopted by a white family when he was 13 years old. Right, right. Um, um, did his father die or something? Well, you, you looked into that. Why was he adopted at 13 well, by a white man? Yeah, I'm not sure the his, history on that is a little cloudy. Okay, it doesn't matter. Well, yeah. I mean, no. Some, t- some say that he died, and that's why... Uh, Wavoka, whose name actually translates as woodcutter, which was the job that he had once he was adopted, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, All the way to his 20s when he started changing into the prophet. Right, right. right. No, his father, some say he died years after the uh, um, Wounded Knee Massacre, but um, no, it's not clear on that. But, but I, I'd like to tell a, a kind of personal story about Indian names here and the tradition of naming, mm-hmm. yes. which... Uh, something that will always stick with me. Uh, the first Native American I met <coughs> and I became friends with was uh, around 50 years ago. When I had gotten out of the Army, I decided I was going to hitchhike. That's impossible. You're only 40 years old, Nick. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. But I, um, I, I got out of the Army, and I, I was going to hitchhike across the country. And uh, so I left my hometown in Illinois with just my Army uh, duffel bag. So I was carrying everything on that, and I just started hitchhiking. I, I probably said anybody who picked me up, you know, I'm going as far west as you're going, right? Uh, I didn't have a real destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, you could hitchhike all the time. It was like everybody was hitchhiking, right? Yeah, that Not was some, then. This is now, right? right. Anyway, And then p- where did you end up? Yeah, okay. You're going to tell the story, or am I? I ended up in, in uh, at the corner of Winslow, Arizona. Standing on a corner of Winslow, Arizona. <laughs> Such a fine sight to see. No, I wasn't a fine <laughs> sight. In fact, um, some Apache teenagers picked me up. You know, I was 20 at the time. I think they were around my age. So they were teenagers or young men like I was, right? And uh, they asked me if, they, if I wanted to go swimming with them at a swimming hole. I said, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So uh, we went to the swimming hole. It was also a campsite. And at that campsite, I actually camped there with, uh, with one of them for a week. Uh, his name was Bill Dixon, mm-hmm. right? And on the days that we weren't, weren't at the campsite, we'd spend our time in a couple of different restaurants. Bill made his money by drawing portraits of people in his large sketchbook. In the time it took like a tourist family to sit down and eat, he had drawn a portrait of one or two of them, right? And as they were walking out to their car, leaving, Bill would catch them out in the parking lot and gift them, gift them. Their portraits. Their portraits. And I, I'd watch the pantomime of what was going on from inside the restaurant. And I, I could predict how much money by how many handshakes or smiles or whatever was mm-hmm. going on. And I knew if there was a lot of that, that uh, it would be a good paycheck and we could go back to the campsite then after mm-hmm. that. So, you know, one night at the uh, campfire, Bill told me his Apache name, the name th- that was used at his home by his family and his community, his people, mm-hmm. right? And uh, 
the way he shared the name with me, explaining the meaning and the significance of it, it, it made me feel very honored, like I was now part of his family or his community or something, you know. But then he told me the story of his English name, Bill Dixon, mm-hmm. right? It came from when his grandfather was a young boy and the government, whose goal was to s- assimilate uh, the natives into the larger culture, had forced all the Apache kids to go to a school. And, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So the, the children were instructed at that time to get rid of their native name and choose a uh, first and last name. Christian name. Christian, no, just the name, mm-hmm. <laughs> English name, right? Yeah. Um, well, it would have been Christian, I guess. Um, Bill's grandfather found his surname, you know, sitting right on the desk there that he was, his school desk that he was on. And uh, Bill finished the story of uh, this name by uh, very dramatically holding up his portrait sketching tool, the thing he used to do all his portraits in, yes. which was a yellow Dixon pencil. Yes. I don't know what the case is these days, but there was a time when every pencil was a Dixon pencil, wasn't it? As yeah. I, I remember being in school, and like all the pencils seemed to be Dixon pencils. Yeah, well, back then, too, I think I, I looked it up and, you know, sort uh-huh. of wanted to know more about it. And the Dixon was eventually, uh, name was changed to Ticagaroga. What is the state? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The city up there, because that's where the graphite was found, that Dixon, the name of the guy who invented, or no, he bought the pencil company from a German one, an old German one. <laughs> But he had found the graphite that then became the lead or whatever right. inside the pencil. Right, right. So uh, yeah, so it's funny that uh, Bill Dixon was an artist drawing with a Dixon pencil, his grandfather's heritage, basically. His grandfather's forced name. Yeah, and I guess the the practice even of sketching is kind of more not um, sketching portrait is not a. A native thing. Yeah, they sure. wouldn't. Uh, but something that he now felt was his job. Right, you know? right, right. So anyway, back to Wovoka. Um, when he was 13 years old, he was adopted by a devout Presbyterian family. So he was immersed in daily Bible studies, and uh, he was also later on influenced by the Mormons and by an Indian Shaker church that had emerged in, in, 18, in the 1880s. And then one day during a solar eclipse on January 1st, 1889, uh, he had a vision of dying. And well, actually, he went into a coma. I think they said that it was probably scarlet fever, oh. and he did go into a kind of coma for three days. Okay, but he 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 uh, was yeah. speaking with God in heaven, and being commanded by God to teach this new dance far and wide. And the ghost dance, if pro- uh, done properly, promised to uh, hasten the review the reunion of. Uh, the dead with the living and would bring peace to the tribes and the buffalo would come back and western uh, expansion would be halted and the whites would disappear and on and on and on so basically it would restore life to how it used to be that was the promise of this ghost dance and 
Then Native Americans from a lot of different tribes traveled to learn from Vovoka to um, Nevada. And, um, and then by that time, he had a, a self-inflicted stigmata on his hand and, uh, and feet. And uh, that encouraged even more uh, belief that he was this new Messiah, Jesus Christ returned, you know, that was going to save Native Americans. So it was this, this mishmash of, uh, you know, old beliefs and Christian, Christian right, right. doctrine, right? And so this ghost dance, it spread from the east on the Missouri River to up north to the Canada border, um, uh, to the Sierra Nevadas, where it sort of began. Uh, all the way down south in, into northern Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, many of the Lakota tribe adopted it. But by then, Wovoka's message had become, um, which was essentially that of Jesus' message of peace and lo love, had been transformed in, by many into a more militant... Just a more militant form, yeah. And that's what then also led up to the massacre because it heightened tensions and the ghost shirts became part of this dance, this ghost dance. Uh, they were said to be able to repel bullets, for example, right? And, and through their spiritual power. And it was unclear whether this, how this belief originated. Some scholars said that in 1890, Lakota chief Kicking Bear introduced the concept to his people. Um, but an anthropologist named James Mooney argued that the most likely source, and this makes sense to me too, that the most likely source was the Mormon, Mormon temple garment which Mormons believe protect the wearer from evil spirits. And this belief uh, that the ghost dance made you, the ghost shirt made you impervious to bullets was, was part of the tragedy that led up to the Wounded Knee Massacre. Those ghost dance warriors all entered battle into you know, this massacre, believing that they were protected against bullets. Yeah, so we had researched all this while we were on the hill. Well, even tragic. before... We had even put up the teepee. We were researching yeah, yeah. this. But then on, uh, for our trip, we, we began that on December 6th. Which is St. Nicholas Day. Any Germans out there will know that. St. Nicholas Day. Okay. <laughs> More yeah. symbolism. Yeah, right. Uh, we, left on the, we left from the hill for our three-week road trip to explore all this in person. The land, especially. And our very first stop was at Wounded Knee on the... Pine Ridge Reservation. Yes, and when we got there, we were really surprised at how, first of all, sparsely populated it was, and this this vast, barren, craggy stretch of land, right? Uh, towns and street names weren't marked, and um, there'd be like clusters of houses with, with miles and miles in between, except for the town of Pine Ridge itself, which is where residents must have gone for food and supplies and so forth, because otherwise we didn't really see any stores there. No, and uh, we asked people walking along the road for directions. There were always people walking yeah. along the road, right? Knowing that someone... Somebody would pick them up. They just started walking, right. and eventually they figured a car would come, and right. that's how they did it. So we asked for a wounded knee, but uh, they wanted to know who we wanted to see. Yeah. And we, told, we said, Leola One Feather, and they gave us directions to her house. Uh, you know, we had the impression that everybody knew each other. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before going to meet Leola, uh, we stopped at the Wounded Knee Memorial site, 
it was barely off the road next to a brook, and there was a modest, neglected little cemetery there. Uh, although there was signage giving brief history of the massacre, it was not really a historical site the way you think of it. It just really looked more to me. It felt like the whole thing was just... In, in fact, that's a general impression that I got. It was the first time that I realized this was not that long ago. It was not ancient history for the Lakota, right? Um, so it was still unreconciled and not like historic or symbolic or something. Right. And John and Annie, the, the filmmaker and uh, actress who had uh, worked with us on making the play and now making a film on the hill, had been there a few weeks before us, and they l met Leola first. In fact, they got married out there. Yeah, in the, in the, in uh, the Badlands. Right. Uh, with the they, native of Fishian, right? Right, yeah. exactly. And when we got to Leola's place, it was like a little subdivision, and we were struck sort of with the similarities to the hill, not that there were huts, there were houses. For instance, some Native Americans from Atlanta had brought some clothes up to donate, and these clothes were all scattered all over in the mud. The front yard. Of Leola's place. You know, the same way people had come up to the hill and with clothes. Yeah, people them. brought clothes all the time, but they weren't needed, right? right. And so they just, it, yeah. Right, right. Although the people on the hill were really good also at, at making it. people feel, right. you know, acting grateful and making people feel good right. about themselves. They, they were very good about that, actually. Yeah. So Annie had warned us that it was a very poor community, and it was kind of shockingly poor. It was a real wake-up call for me. But mostly what I took away from it, that there was still very little interest in personal possessions and stuff and this sort of white man's way of living. It was not organic to them by a, a long stretch, the sort of middle-class version of homes and lifestyle that they were supposed to assimilate no, to. right, it right. Was, yeah. Leola had uh, visitors when we arrived. Some some sort of research or documentary was being done, and she is the resident uh, Lakota and Wounded Knee expert. Uh, everybody sends you to her, and she is a fountain of information mm -hmm. about Lakota history and culture. She has eight kids, mm -hmm. and uh, both her and her husband, I guess they look to be in their late 30s. Yeah, it's very handsome people. Yeah, I remember how stunning he looked riding up on horseback, right? Yes, yes, um, straight like, out of a movie. Right. <laughs> Cliche. Right. right, he said he had been hunting slow elk. <laughs> slow <laughs> elk, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, he explained to us what slow elk were. They were the cattle, <laughs> slow, slow elk cattle, right? <laughs> that were uh, grazing on land just adjacent to the reservation. This was land that the Lakota thought was theirs, but you know, it was leased to uh, white ranchers. Mm -hmm. The government had leased it to them and uh, for grazing their cattle. Well, we, we stayed and, and listened to their stories till sundown, and, and then we took off, back off on our trip, yes. which was... West still, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then we drove all the way to Reno, uh, not on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> That's a Tom Waits song. Right. Tom Waits <laughs> is a good um, good road trip. Yes. Uh, yeah. Listen, you know, what's the other one? Um, the old 59? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. The parade, right. And I lead the parade. Right. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, he's one of our go-tos, especially on road trips, right? right. 
Um, so in Reno, we did a lot of research. Again, we went to the Nevada Historical Society the library there to research Wavoka, Jack Wilson, the Ghost Dance Messiah. Um, he came from that region. And we went to Pyramid Lake and Walker Lake and the surrounding area where Wavoka spent his life, basically. Right. And we also met An Annie and John out there. Yes. And there we got to listen to uh, an audio tape that they had recorded while they were filming. Leola and uh, her stories, her thoughts, and her songs. Yeah, they were so inspiring, right? Uh, now that we had met her, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, next episode, we'll talk about the rest of our trip, uh, including one of the most amazing discoveries that we made. We went back to Pine Ridge. We went back into the Black Hills, but another. A discovery was another memorial, right? Which was the Crazy Horse Memorial. Right. And you got to remember back then there was no Google, uh, no GPS, right? And uh, we just happened upon this, not knowing beforehand that it existed. Uh, and we found some connection there with the both yes. the, the the memorial and with the who were putting it up. The, the it's people, pretty amazing. It's yeah. yeah, it's kind of an amazing story. That's it. You got anything yeah. else? No. <laughs> All right, so as always, feel free to write us on any topic. Podcast is at thiefstheater.org. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Thanks for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. If you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that bell so you know when our next episode is coming out. And check out our website at thiefstheater.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at uh, TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I -I on the Hill. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank as you. Always. Thank you.